Hello, and welcome to the Accidental Muralist podcast. My name is Pam Concier. I am the founder and host of this podcast and of All Hands Art, allhandsart.com. And today, well, let's see. I've been, today's topic comes from out of the fact that I've been teaching in a lot of new settings this fall. And combined with that, it happens to be the weekend right now of my 35th college reunion. Um, I am not going. <laughs> I've gone to all the other ones. I went to Stanford. I had a great experience there, especially socially. Um, but I have had really mixed feelings recently, and this year I've found that I've actively not wanted to go um, because of some things that I'm kind of working through. So to help explain that, so every time a reunion comes around, there is a class book that gets compiled and people can, you know, we used to do it old school, like on a piece of paper, you would make write out or type out your stuff, maybe glue or tape on some photos and, and mail it in. These days, it's all done online, of course. <clears throat> and it's a chance to include some photos and let your classmates know what you've been up to. So for mine, <laughs> I decided to be honest and so I'm going to read you what I wrote. First, it, it has this uh, little section for favorite Stanford memories. So um, I said, dorm life, as introverted as I am, I loved living in a hive of activity. Also, people would come to me for a haircut after a bad experience at Supercuts. I'd set up in the dorm hallway and small crowds would gather either to taunt us with the same old jokes. Ooh, did you mean to do that? or to wait their turn for a cut. It was both social and useful, a combo I still value. And then the next section is, what would you like your classmates to know about your life today? <clears throat> so here's what I wrote in that section. I've struggled with what to say here because I'm in the process of actively unlearning everything our culture trained me to believe about who holds knowledge and what a successful life looks like. Part of that is questioning the value of a university education in a world that is already so lopsidedly skewed toward the linear, the so-called rational, the supposedly provable, and the masculine way of doing everything. I ingested a lot of BS in the 80s that I'm still recovering from. <clears throat> I work daily now <clears throat> to fill myself with story, art, magic, beauty, feeling, and everything else that can't be quantified but is full of meaning. And then I tell a little uh, background about myself. Back, backing up around age 40, I got divorced, got cancer, and got burned out from it. my career teaching elementary school. That all prompted me to start shedding my good girl, people-pleasing perfectionist habits and tend to my own well-being which I finally realized would in turn support my children's well-being. Tiny steps led me to accidentally becoming a community mural artist, a wholly unexpected twist like a little joke from the universe for someone who was until then a very closeted wannabe artist. 
Suddenly I was leading hundreds of volunteers in creating large-scale public art installations. I could no longer claim that I wasn't creative enough to be an artist. My re-education continued percolating when I became an empty nester and moved to Portland with my partner a few years back. These days I seek balance by measuring less, listening more, slowing down, finding beauty everywhere, and making choices that create soul rather than deplete it. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is a little froggy this morning. Um, I continue on. I teach mosaic workshops at a salvage yard called the Rebuilding Center. I teach art journaling, which is a fancy term for doodling online and at Portland Community College. I teach flamenco rhythm and dance to little kids and spend a chunk of my small income on dance and singing classes for myself through Espacio Flamenco. I try to be up and outside in the backyard early enough each morning to watch the birds start their day. I move and stretch my body in ways that feel good. I put my hands and feet in soil and touch the bark of trees and give thanks for the water that flows so reliably and cleanly out of our taps. A freaking miracle when you think about it. I'm kind of obsessed with cob, an ancient and now modern technique that uses sand, clay, and straw to construct earthen homes. In fact, I may be building a composting loo in our backyard out of Cobb while you're at the reunion. And I offer what can best be described as creative courage coaching to folks who feel trapped in the 9 to 5 or need help extricating themselves from the career or the relationship or the lifestyle track that feels safe and familiar but is also silently killing them. I survived that path, continue to mine all of the lessons there, and love to see others reclaiming their creative agency. Most of my musings can be found at allhandsart.com in the form of a blog, a podcast called The Accidental Muralist, a handwritten book called Doodle Your Way Out of Stuckness, and other offerings. And I close by saying, wishing you slowness, stillness, regular doses of silence, body movement that feels fantastic, deep connection with the earth body, and a daily creative practice to help regenerate any soul you've lost in the process of seeking worldly success. So that is just to set the stage for um, some book reports I want to give today. Because as I am, like I said in that little missive as I am unlearning what the culture taught me was important um, I am discovering through books and through silent contemplation and through podcasts things that um, feel like knowledge that I already had inside me there's a word for that that I have also learned in these books and podcasts called Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, um, which is the term for it. I think it's a, an old Greek word. The, the companion word is techne. Techne would be like things you learn in books, information, data. Um, and then gnosis is like things that you just understand at a cellular level. So my struggle with universities in general is that they, they exist for techne, 
they don't deal in gnosis because you can't always quantify it and prove it and unpack it and count it. And so um, it's really the thing that I'm focused on right now. So I, I find myself drawn to books that are not so much teaching me new information, but reminding me of inherent skills that I already have and things that I already understand and that I already value, but that haven't been reflected in the values of my culture. And so it feels, um, I'm just, I'm reading things that just light me up inside and feel new in that they were never on a syllabus, <clears throat> but they feel old because it's like, yes, <laughs> this something in me already knew this was important. And so thank you to these authors um, who the three I chose today all happen to be women. Thank you for writing these books. So the first one is a book called The Art of Gathering. Subtitle, How We Meet and Why It Matters. This is written by Priya Parker, and it's a book about a topic I've never, before I was introduced to her work, I've never actually heard anybody talk about, which is how, how to create gatherings that, that build connections between people, that foster a sense of trust, that creates sort of a special universe that you enter, let's say for a wedding, or it even could be like a corporate board meeting that could have special rules around it, special norms that are going to um, cause conversations to happen that wouldn't normally happen if you just went by the standard inherited you know, way things have always been done, kind of um, meetings or weddings or any kind of gathering. And she makes the point that all gatherings, like the first time people started having weddings, they were very intentionally created to serve a purpose for that, for those people in that time, highlighting what was important and what was needed, and then over time, things kind of get codified. And, and even though the needs over time change, sometimes nostalgia just kind of ties us to doing things in the old way, even though we've outgrown or you know the purpose maybe has become less relevant. So she <clears throat> is all about starting with the why understanding like what is the purpose of this function why are we gathering and then having a strong sense of what it's about then that can kind of dictate the food you serve and the decorations and the things where most people in let's say planning a baby shower would start with well what should we you know what kind of food are we going to have how can we decorate maybe some games or something but maybe not thinking of like what would the expectant parents 
want to come out of this gathering? Like what, how would they, what kind of support would they be looking for? What would feel meaningful to them as they are transitioning into this, like from one way of life as a couple or as a single mother or whoever it is to, you know, their life is going to change forever. They don't know, they know that on a theoretical level, but they don't know what it's going to feel like, because how could they? And, you know, how can we maybe instead mark this initiation from one phase of life into another and, and, um, and give some kind of support that, that might feel um, helpful? So that's one idea. Anyway, the book is full of just really thought-provoking ideas, and it's sort of laid out chronologically working your way through a gathering from the initial communication about it, which she defines as the start of your gathering. The first time you send out a message or an invitation, that's when the gathering officially starts because now people are, you know, you're kind of setting the stage for what's to come all the way through, you know, the, the greeting and the starting and then the, the meat of it and the center and then how to close and then following up afterwards. Um, so I highly recommend it. The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. And if you're somebody who regularly gathers people together or wants to gather people together or has wanted to but has been kind of at a loss for like, I don't feel like I have good hosting skills or I've never done this very much or how come whenever I host people it always feels awkward or... Um, you're tired of doing the same old, same old, um, this book can change your life. So that is book number one. Book number two is one that I have I read about 20 years ago and loaned to somebody and never got it back, which is okay. I hope they're using it and got a lot out of it. It is called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards. Um, if you're an artist or have ever taken drawing classes or art went to art school maybe you may be familiar with this book it's kind of one of the bibles in the field it's a classic she originally wrote it in 1979 i think and i spent about an hour at powell's last week going through because i'm you know i I, my instinct is to buy like a cheap used copy if I can. But then I was going through because there are now four editions of this book. And I wanted to see like what did she add and what's, which one, you know, seems like it's most relevant. I ended up getting the paying full price for the newest edition because each time she updates this book, She's bringing in new brain research that validates her theory. Okay, just let me step back a little bit. The reason that I that this became relevant in my life right now is that I um, I was hired by Portland Community College in the spring to teach a class starting this fall, an art journaling class. That's in my wheelhouse. I've done a lot of doodling. I've taught it 
enough times that I feel really comfortable doing that. Then, shortly before the term started, they asked if I would be willing to teach a class called Drawing at the Portland Art Museum. And that's what we do. We go to the Portland Art Museum and I lead this little drawing class. I said yes, um, even though I don't go to museums that often and I don't spend much time drawing. Other than that, I'm totally qualified. Um, but I thought it would be a good challenge. It would uh, you know, raise up all my imposter syndrome things, give me some things to work on. And it, it sent me to, to this book because this book, um, as the name implies, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, she is using and probably was one of the people who sort of brought into public discourse the idea of the two sides of our brain where you've probably heard the terms left brain, right brain. So generally the left brain is the, for most people the center of language and linear thinking and logic and sort of data collection and number crunching reading is a left brain task um, because reading has to progress in a linear order you can't like ingest a whole page at once you have to go line by line so all these things are left brain functions and then the right brain is the hemisphere that control that is in charge of emotions and sort of observation and taking in visual information and um, I think body sensations, sort of registering body sensations and um, making connections between things. So it's, it's the complementary side to the left brain. However, you may have noticed that in our society, we worship left brain activities and we denigrate anything that is a right brain sort of feeling, sensing skill because, um, you know, that's like associated with the arts or with females and those are things that are not valued in our society in general. Um, that was an oversimplification, but also it rings true, right? So in this book, she, in, and in the fourth edition, which I picked up because I started reading the introduction to see what was different about this one, and she, she's making a strong case, and also this is meaningful to me as a former public school teacher who taught mostly kindergarten and first grade, which is heavily about teaching, reading, or preparing kids to learn how to read. She's making a case and she, she does it very well, backed up by a lot of left brain processed research, that drawing is a skill that everybody can learn and should learn and should be taught in school as sort of the, in a similar way that reading is taught. All kids learn how to read not, here's one argument that she makes that's quite compelling, like we value 
reading for everybody, not so that, you know, we don't teach five-year-olds to read so that they can go on, grow up to write the great American novel. We teach kids to read because it's a functional skill that improves their life and it's very useful to have in the world. She is presenting drawing as an equivalent, equivalently useful skill that teaches perception, relationships, perspective. These are drawing terms, but you can hear that they are also useful terms in life. And she, and by developing and spending time teaching drawing, which everybody can do, and not with the purpose of teaching drawing so that everybody can grow up and be a professional artist, but teaching drawing so that everybody can grow up and be able to see connections between things, be able to put things in perspective, be able to understand proportion and relationships between things and take in the whole picture, the big picture, um, because where the left brain is focused on like details and data points, the right brain is the thing that sort of um, sees the big picture, puts it all, takes a lot of information and synthesizes it together. So I'm convinced <laughs> and reading, you know, just I hadn't even finished the introduction of the book before I was starting to feel so on fire, like I need to teach everybody how to draw. And it also elevated just in me, I realized that I had some biases against drawing. And this reminded me of my podcast last year with Rhiannon, and I haven't talked to her about this yet, but I want to go back and, and do another one with her and talk more about drawing because um, we had this whole discussion where, you know, about like, is drawing creative because you're replicating something that exists as opposed to, as Betty Edwards talks about in this book, in the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years or maybe 100 years, our culture has started to value, to identify creativity as like, the, the expressive, wildly imaginative, you know, sort of um, unbounded expression of ideas or originality as, as what is creative as opposed to like, and then drawing feels a little bit, um, a lot tamer than that. And so it's easy, and I was guilty of this as sort of putting drawing outside of the realm of creativity as more of a mechanical skill. And maybe it is, it, is, it has mechanics in it, but this book is just like reframing everything that I thought I knew about drawing and it's gotten me super excited. So, and it's, yeah, I'm, I'm now loving teaching this class and it's, I don't know, I'm learning so much. So I thank you to the universe for leading me down the little popcorn trail to teaching at PCC in the first place and then, and then being asked to teach the drawing class and then getting back to Betty Edwards and drawing on the right side of the brain. Highly recommended, does not matter if you have aspirations to be an artist, it is brain food for everybody to bring balance to our world. 
that is book number two. And the third one was a birthday gift from my daughter and soon-to-be son-in-law um, by Brene Brown called Atlas of the Heart. I know that a lot of you are reading it or have heard of it. And this book is, as it as the title implies, it's an atlet, it's a map of emotions. It's a it's like a dictionary sort of glossary type of roadmap for naming emotions, understanding what they are, understanding the differences between ones that we often confuse, like I was reading the other day about the difference between jealousy and envy and how envy involves two people. Like envy is when you see somebody who has something that you wish you had or does something that you wish you did. And jealousy has to involve at least three people because it's usually like you're in a relationship and you're jealous that there's this third person who is threatening you know the love your partner feels for you or you feel like there you know there's there's a, a triangle involved so you know just things like that where and her her point in writing this book is that if we if we all or even if just some of us became more fluent in being able to name to to name our emotions that we're feeling and understand them, we could operate with more um, skill, I guess, and and not just like keep staying in the same rut or keep projecting our emotions on other people because we don't know any other way to do it. And it's another one, you know, obviously this is in the realm. So far, the only people I know who are reading this book are women. Um, I hope that there are millions of men who also read this book. Um, same with the drawing book, same with the gathering book, because this, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about why I'm trying to kind of unlearn my college education. Partly it's because, for example, in the philosophy class I took, which was satisfying some you know, requirement, 100% of the, of the philosophers in the syllabus were white men, European men. It, without saying it out loud, it, it, I ingested this idea that great thinkers are male and that, you know, things have to, you know, when they're discussing logic and all that, I'm like, I don't understand how that's even philosophy because philosophy means love of knowledge. And to me, it just felt like mental traps and like mind games that were really confusing and it, I, I couldn't relate to much of it, and I always thought that that was my fault. Same thing in Western culture, which was a freshman requirement, which already in the 80s was being very, was being protested by students 
was hotly debated and now and shortly after I left the whole program was overhauled and now it's very very different and there is no such thing as you know a, a western culture requirement um and there's they have expanded it to include more than white european men um but at the time that's what i was studying machiavelli and hegel and the thing and i i always thought it was me like why is this so hard for me why do other people seem to be kind of interested in this stuff and be able to ingest it and like have discussions about it and it just felt like such a slog for me to catch up with the reading so much that i had nightmares a recurring nightmare for like at least 15 years after college probably more like 20 where i would wake up or i in my dream i would um be thinking oh no the my midterms tomorrow and i haven't even started the reading which was not exactly accurate but it was kind of partially true um i was always behind in the reading it felt like a slog i couldn't process it enough i didn't have to, i wasn't laying down and doing shavasana after reading and trying to you know absorb what i had read because i had so much more reading to do and i was not able to process it enough to contribute to class discussions i could barely even follow the class discussions and i always thought it was just my inferior brain um but I realized that there was a whole world out there that I mean now I realize that if I were studying different material that related more to my life <laughs> I would have been super interested because right now I you know I plow my way through books at a pretty good speed and um they're quite exciting and I do this on my own time because I want to and it, and I don't care about getting any more degrees. So, I would like to close with a poem by Rumi. I got this from Michael Mead, who I've talked about before, and this poem is called Two Kinds of Intelligence. There are two kinds of intelligence. One acquired as a child in school memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional lessons as well as from the new sciences. And with such intelligence, you can rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. After all, we live in the world of information. And then you stroll with this intelligence in and out of the fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablet. I think in the 14th century when he was writing this, the the preserving tablet was like some I think they had tablets with like a wax coating that you could however write on whatever you were using to write on it but then kind of melt it off and reuse it and reuse it but then there must have been one kind that you kept preserved okay back to the poem but there is another kind of tablet 
one already completed and preserved inside you. It is a spring overflowing its spring box, a freshness in the center of the chest, and this other intelligence does not turn yellow or stagnate. It is fluid and it doesn't move simply from the outside to the inside to the conduits of plumbing learning. Rather, the second kind of knowing is a, is a fountainhead from within you, always ready to move out. That's Rumi. And when I felt like I had a little insight into the word spring box, which I would not have really understood except for a couple years ago, Mark and I went to um, spend the weekend with some friends who had a cabin in the Wallawa Mountains in, in far, far eastern Oregon over near Idaho. And on that property, there was a spring flowing out of the ground, like there's the spring water fresh out of the ground. And there was a little box <laughs> that someone had built, just a little wooden sort of container the spring was still flowing like it kept going wherever it was going but there was a box where you could sort of um i think i think i'm trying to picture what it looked like and how it worked some water would kind of pool up in there so you could take a bucket or a pitcher or something and just dip it into the water you didn't need to um purify the water it is literally like it was in the ground a second ago and now it's out of the ground like you're right at the fountainhead you're right at the spring box collecting that water right from the thing so I, that had new meaning for me i think if i read this you know before i had seen that it wouldn't have made as much sense but i love that section of the of the thing the other kind of tablet already completed and preserved inside you it is a spring overflowing its spring box a freshness in the center of the chest. Hmm. So may you find reading material and podcasts and conversations that remind you of all the gnosis, all the knowledge that is already in your cells that's already in your soul that you came into the world with and that unfortunately our culture has sort of tried to squash over with all kinds of book learning, some of it very useful, some of it probably oppressive and um, also, you know, if you were told in church like I was that you, we are by nature sinful and unclean and you had to say that out loud each week. Um, I hope that you can replace those ideas with this idea of gnosis of knowledge and wisdom that your body already holds and, and that you can find resources that remind you every day that that is true for you. Thank you for listening, and if you want more information about the things I'm up to or the work I do or ideas, you can check out my blog or at allhandsart.com. 
um, and other resources there. And I will catch you next time on the Accidental Muralist Podcast.